Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Mr. Pronoia podcast. Today, we have our good friend Jeff Larson joining us. We recently met Jeff and had the pleasure of sharing some deep conversations over the past few months. It quickly became obvious to us that he'd be a great addition to bring on as a guest and to share his depth of knowledge. On this episode, we'll be covering a range of fascinating topics, including collective spiritual warfare, Christ consciousness, and writing the gratitude snowball. Jeff also fills us in on the mysteries and the histories of UFOs and crop circles. So, let's get into it. What's up, Jeff? Not much. How is Mr. Pronoia? Mr. Pronoia is going well. We've had a we've had all had some pretty big busy schedules, so it's nice to get back here and hopefully get a little consistency rolling. Absolutely. I love that you start it with the Wim Hof method. Yeah, it's been a nice, something to add in to get us kind of primed in. And also, I feel like there's something powerful about getting on that same breath rhythm. Mm, right. Yeah. Well, in, in the synchronization uh, of the breath, you know, that's something um, we were doing that. We were just talking about that before we started uh, that Monday we had well, the four of us and we're doing, yeah, Wim Hof breath work, but it was all synced together. Um you know, I'm reading right now Stanislav Grof's holotropic breathwork, um, and that's a core concept there is that everybody in the room just starts going together. Like it just, you know, you don't have to have Wim Hof's voice. Uh, those prompts are nice, you know, for something like that to do it quickly. But uh, the group, you know, that the group does it all together. Mm-hmm. I love that. It with a, I've never done actual holotropic breath work. I've heard of it and I heard it's pretty similar to the whim, but in your experience, you said you just did some recently. Was, was there many big differences that you saw? So no, I, I haven't done it. Um, I've just read. So, you know, Stanislav Grof was kind of the, the, the main person that, that came up with this, uh, or, or at least did it in the modern era. Like these techniques are old. I mean, yogis and Hindus did it thousands of years ago. Right. Um, but Groff, who's still alive, um, started in the, in the sixties, I believe. Um, but essentially, you know, it is a way to reach altered states of consciousness without, uh, any kind of, you know, drug or, you know, peyote or any of the things that like cultures have used for thousands of years. Um, you know, that's something I, you know, Michael Pollan talked about that as well, that, uh, altered states of consciousness, uh, are you you don't have to have anything outside of yourself. Uh, you know, like Indian braves, they'd send them into a cave. You know, you can do this through sensory deprivation, do it through breath, um, do it through fasting. You know, that it's incredible. People I talk to about fasting of the experiences they'll have after, uh, you know, a day, two days, three days, all of a sudden your body is in your mind are operating in a com- completely different frequency. I could totally see that. It's almost like it codes it in a different way. You know, it's it's like a kind of like a hard reset for your body. Right. And I'm sure it's a great way to get rid of a bunch of toxins and whatnot. Yeah. Right. Well, we were just talking about biohacking, you know, that, that, uh, you know, the, this new, it's not new, it's old. What What's old is new again, right? We have retro mania in this country, old cars, old clothes, um, and the bullet. Old, yeah. <laughs> and old techniques, um, like sauna and cold, um, I remember reading about that in, in Latin class, the collidarium and the frigidarium is, you know, the benefits of heat and then going from heat to cold of the detoxification of the heat. And then that the cold really, you know, gives you all these 
like we were talking about cold shock proteins um, and resets your metabolism, gives you mental clarity and energy. Even something like the sound bath, I heard that they used to have these caves that I'm pretty sure it was monks that used to go into people that go into these caves of people who needed healing and whatnot and do chanting. And apparently it would reverberate off these caves and cause this kind of like echo effect. And you would get these really loud, just vibratory chants that were going in there. And apparently that was kind of like a healing chamber they used to do. So, you know, sound, sound baths even have been going on for a long time as well. Yeah. The healing benefits of sound. Mm -hmm. I, we went to one recently. Um, yeah. Here, uh, Spoon Moon uh, does them on, on Friday sometimes. And it's, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of a mixture of um, like electronic uh, sounds and then also playing instruments. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. Usually I see the uh, crystal bowls and there's mm -hmm. what the singing bowls, you know, I always, I always appreciate those as well. Right. Does Maria still have some of those? She does. Yeah. I think she's got three of them. You guys ever break them out? Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. They're pretty big to travel with, but we bust them out here at the house often. And then um, you know, our last guest, uh, Blyst, Matt Blystone, he has a full set of them too, mm. all, you know, colored with the different chakras and he'll bring them out sometimes as well. I remember thinking it was a lot, it was a lot louder than I thought it'd be. Mm -hmm. These things are intense. Yeah, they really are. <laughs> They'll ring your bell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, Jeff, you brought up something recently before, before we started this up and I thought it was really interesting. You know, you're talking about quantum physics and how we're, I, you know, I was making a remark on how we're in the science age right now. And as we discover more of quantum physics and how that relates to us and our reality, I think that we're going to be open up a whole new chapter whenever you, we realize that there is a marriage between science and spirituality. And once we start seeing these correlations, I think a lot more people are going to be open-minded and you know, that is one of the things that I was saying is that we're kind of at a point right now where you know, a lot of people, if it's not quantifiable, they don't really care to entertain it because a lot of that stuff takes faith and it's experiential based when you grow faith. You know, it's usually not just you're told something and you can feel it in your gut. You know, usually we have to, as humans, we have to go in and experience it ourselves. And I'm really interested to see that gap bridged and how that comes about and how long that will take. You know, I don't know, but it's, it's going to be a really exciting time that we're going into Absolutely. Yeah. It, like we were talking about, it seems to me, you know, that there was this um, kind of black, we love to see things in black and white, right? It's always portrayed that way that you can either believe in science, or you can believe in spirituality. And I think that, you know, quantum physics has shown that it's not true. They're not mutually exclusive. Um, that, you know, like Einstein talked about spooky action at a, a distance, um, quantum entanglement gives us now, you know, two particles can affect each other across space time instantaneously. You know, that helps show things like how prayer is very real and tangible. Exactly. And it also makes you wonder how much consciousness and awareness affects our reality. You know, whenever you see that tie of, you know, just observing one thing has an immediate effect on something else that doesn't matter the distance, you know, it doesn't have to be in proximity to it, but the effect is immediate just by observation alone. That's incredible. Yeah, it really is. I don't even think we really understand what it, what, what all that entails. And who knows, you know, AI may be one of those things that helps us understand this reality a little bit better, you know, once it can take the information that we have already and and see 
how these dots are connected that maybe we can't see from our perspective that we're so close to it, that there's, there's a potential that AI could help maybe bridge that gap a little bit more for us. Right. So what's new with you, Jeff? What's, what's on your plate lately? What's got you busy? Man, um, I feel like I am burning the candle at both ends constantly. Yeah. Yeah. We are, um, yeah. Um, all is well. My, my wife's family's moved down here. Um, her parents are here, so that's been good. That's been, uh, it's been exciting to have them here. We kind of met there at the sauna, uh, here a few months ago and, and have talked about getting together and I'm glad that we've, we've finally been able to make this happen. Yeah. It's really cool to see how just a couple interesting conversations in the sauna can, uh, lead to a new friendship and, you know, getting together for a podcast. And it's been really cool to see that, uh, we have a lot of the same interests, you for know, sure. so, and, and Matt and I get to see you nearly almost every time we go to the gym, the timing <laughs> just works out great. So it's, it's nice to have another buddy up there to, to shoot some stuff back and forth. And yeah. The sauna is funny, right? Because you're so, un it's uncomfortable. It's just inherently difficult. I mean, it's the one we go to is 200 degrees. Wow. So, um, yeah, as we're in there, um, a lot of, but a lot of interesting conversations come from it. I, I feel like, uh, on any given day, I may have my best conversation in the sauna. hundred <laughs> percent. I've noticed that it's like a natural truth serum. There's something about the sauna that especially once I start hitting past that 10 minute mark, uh, my thoughts just start flowing out. You know, the filter right. kind of goes away, which can be a good thing or maybe a maybe a bad thing. But um, I like how it just it it brings up interesting conversations and people kind of spill their guts on stuff, and it it leads to some bonding for there, sure. You know, right? And just the nature of the the nature of the sauna too attracts people that would be interested in those kind of conversations. It's almost like a a curator because i mean most people i mean if you're willing to put yourself in that uncomfortableness for the the benefits then you're going to be open to a lot of just interesting ideas in general and so i think compared to just like the average person on the street the people you find in the sauna you do have more likely chance of having some really good conversations that are, are much deeper than kind of that surface level stuff that's a good point, you know, because <clears throat> just generally speaking, if the people are going to the sauna, they're pushing the needle, you know, they're trying to better themselves. You know, you already have the level of going to the gym and trying to better yourself, but then the people that are going to the sauna are even probably taking it that extra little step too. So maybe that's where some of those those good conversations are coming in. It's just you inherently have stuff in common. Yeah, and it's always funny too because I know lots of times when when we're in there. I mean, there could be five people in there and we'll just have conversations as if no one's there but us. So we'll talk about some pretty intense stuff. <laughs> and you know that those, those people have no, no, nothing to do but listen to you, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, and yeah, so, sorry to put you in that situation, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, no, well, that's exactly right. You guys were having an interesting conversation and I walked into the middle of it and said, wait a minute, you guys are talking about what now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've noticed that most people that are in there, we we had a good laugh about it one time. That it seems like someone made someone made an observation that the sauna a couple years ago, a few years ago, wasn't very busy. You know, yeah. like not a lot of people in there. Once Rogan and and Huberman and all of them start popping right. off, now it's like you go in there and there's five six people in there every time. You know, 
Well, and that's one thing Huberman talks about is your ability to experience pleasure is directly re- related to your ability to withstand pain. Um, and so, yeah, sauna is one of those things that, you know, that, yeah, once you do it and you feel detoxified, you, you get a lasting feeling uh, of positivity as you come out of it. Same, same thing with cold. Cold probably lasts longer, yeah. but is way more unpleasant. It's tough. <laughs> it's much tougher. Yeah. You're not having many conversations in the cold plunge. No, no. I, I, I was telling y'all before we started, uh, Monday I did cold plunge at 45 degrees and I had difficulty catching my breath. I mean, it was, it was, I thought I went to, went into it with the right mindset, but I then realized, oh man, I've really got to concentrate to get my lungs full and, and empty them. Uh, because you, I mean, you want to like hyperventilate almost. Yeah. It almost makes you go into that shallow breathing. Right. I know for me, when I do cold exposure <clears throat> with water, um, cold plunging, that I almost have to get a, a running start with my breath. You know, those, it's kind of like that holotropic or like the Wim Hof deep ends, deep outs. I have to do that for, it seems like at least 15 seconds before I get in there or else right when that cold hits me, like you were saying, it kind of just sucks the air out of you and it's really hard to get it going again. Right. Absolutely. But even though there's not many conversations, you know, in the cold plunge, I would say it's equally as bonding if you can do it with a group of people. I mean, there's no words needed when you're going through an intense situation like that. Like just the just the eye connection alone is like we're in this, man. For sure. (laughs) Did you guys watch the the Wim Hof documentary that Vice did? I don't think so. It's interesting and it's only 40 or 45 minutes, but um, yeah, it's funny. You know, they go up into the mountains with Wim and they all do these very difficult things and they're out in the cold and they're climbing up a mountain in shorts, you know, in, and with no shirt on uh, and it's snowing. Wow. Um, But yeah, you, you see these guys and there's definitely that, yeah, that, I don't know, bonding camaraderie uh, for sure yeah of we are we are in it to do this difficult thing and by god we're gonna get it done that's unique too because i know for me the older i get you almost have to seek out that camaraderie and and community and i feel like doing stuff like that i mean it just throws you right into it similar to the days back in playing sports in high school and stuff you just have that connection with people you know and that's one of those ways to seek it out as I'm getting older, I've found is just like the, the optimization with the, the sauna or the cold plunge. It just inherently brings it in. Right. Well, and it, it breaks us out of our you know daily routine. That, that's the tough thing, like we were talking about. I mean, there's so much negativity. There's so much, uh, you know, when it comes to media, when it comes to your phone or um, whatever media outlet is. They always say maximum enragement is maximum engagement. So they know if they can push something to your phone, to your news feed, that is going to really anger you and get you all pissed off and wound up. That's what they do because then you're going to share it. Mm-hmm. You're going to spend more time on there so they can sell more ad space. and Right. Yeah, they get a bunch of perks out of it. So it's it's good to have these things, these releases that get that bust us out of that that mindset, right? 100%. You mentioned be, kind of being in a busy chapter of life right now. How, how have you been handling that? And I'm sure kind of what you're talking about, the, the gym and the, the heat of the sauna and all that helps you kind of break away also from some of the hecticness, but what are some, um, what are some learnings that you've had during this particular chapter about yourself? Anything come to come to mind? Mm, Um, 
you know, trying to stay grounded is, I mean, I think that's universal. Um, I mean, that's, that's an everyday thing. It's an everyday, uh, struggle, um, stay, you know, staying grounded, staying positive, uh, you know, positivity is uh, today. Yeah. Of course, you know, got into the conversation about what's going on in Israel and Hamas and Ukraine and, you know, these things that are very real and are happening and are part of our world. Um, and, and it is, I, I do find, uh, I, I mean, I struggle with it. I think everyone does of, of getting out, trying to be positive, trying to stay grounded. Um, but I, I think breath work helps a ton. Um, yoga. I mean, I'm, listen, I'm 44. I made fun of yoga for like 40 years <laughs> and then I started doing it. Oh, okay. Um, but it was, yeah, I, I, although I guess I always did a little bit of it. I did, um, Taekwondo and martial arts when I was young and figured out that if I did, uh, stretching and breathing and really stretching is really about breathing. Like if you want to get flexible, if you want to do the splits, if you want to whatever, get better hip mobility for sports, um, whatever it is, it's really about, you know, resetting your breath and, and pairing that with, with the stretching. And so I did that and I got better. And so I've always kind of, uh, done that stretch, you know, before, after, during exercise or really, I mean, before I go to bed every night and, uh, but, but getting into an actual yoga practice is probably definitely the most grounding thing, you know, to, to answer your question. And, um, yeah, I, I enjoy a variety of it. Um, you know, traditional yin yoga, uh, I like just because I do plenty of the, the yang side, uh, plenty of the sweating and the, you know, weightlifting and all those kinds of things. I like to breathe, relax, stretch, try to regain some mobility. You know, flexibility is one of those things that, uh, just like muscle mass, you're always losing it. So you, you are going to have to work to maintain it. Do you find that, uh, so with a lot of the busyness comes a little more stress in your day to day kind of moment to moment, you, you mentioned something about the, it being a little bit more difficult to stay grounded and centered. Uh, do you, th is there a correlation with a lot of that stuff? And if there is what, yeah, what, uh, well, first off, is there, have you, have you noticed that, that correlation? Uh, definitely. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, the busier and more stressed your life, uh, the more difficult it is to, yeah, to be grounded. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, breath work, uh, I, I would like to do daily. Um, but I, I think, yeah, the stretching always, always before bed. Uh, yeah. Just about no exceptions on that. And that, that lets that, and honestly, that is giving me the best sleep of my life. I used to not sleep well. Have really? you, have yeah. you noticed that it's harder to stay disciplined overall as like in proportion to the stress increasing? Mm. Like, is it easier to slip? Yeah. I, I'm probably more disciplined now than I was in my twenties for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and you see, you know, as you're young and invincible and then you see the results of slipping. Mm -hmm. Um, and then as, as you get older, you realize, Hey, I've, you know, I, I've got to stay on top of, you know, diet, exercise, all these things and, and not just do what I feel like doing. Right. 
Yeah, I love that you said, you know, just trying to stay grounded. And I feel like that is, you know, one of the keys with having a bunch of turbulence going on in a really busy life is just trying to maintain that present moment where our true power really lies, you know. And this book that I'm reading right now, he talks about our alchemy comes from presence and being. And, you know, that recognizing the divinity that we have within us and, and everything we experience and everyone we experience is really only realized in that present moment. And that's where our, like, again, our, our alchemy comes from. And to be able to have an effect on this world and stay out of the stories that we can tell ourselves, um, I feel like that only it stays in the present moment. So staying grounded for me, that's kind of what what I get from that is just like, I know when I get really busy, that's one of the things that can some, sometimes take the back seat is there's just so much going on. It feels like time's flying and it, it's hard for me to stay in that present moment a lot. And be here now, like Ram Dass said, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I, I think that's, yeah, that's man's perpetual struggle, right? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like, it, yeah, you're, when you're busy, it winds up the thoughts and then it's hard to, it's hard, I've noticed it's hard to slow them down too. If, you know, you spend 15 hours of your day just like go, 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 go. Well, even in those, you know, that hour or two in between moments or just at the end of your day, your, your mind is just so going, it's used to going so quickly that it is a lot harder to just completely slow it down to where you can be present and in the moment. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's easy to go days, some weeks, months, and you're just like, whoa, like I wasn't present for like a whole week or I wasn't present for a whole month. And it's like, where did, uh, yeah, where did the time go? Time really does kind of speed up and gets all jumbled together. And it's like you, it's like you miss the show when you're not present. It's like we have this reality in front of us that is like a giant, you know, movie screen. But when we're in our thoughts, it's like you can't be in both places at once. You can either be watching the movie, you can either be engaged in what's in front of you right this second, or you can be in your thoughts. And when you're in your thoughts, you're kind of in a, you're in a matrix of illusions that, uh, yeah. And a lot of people, I mean, you can spend your whole life just being lost in the matrix of thought and completely miss the movie. And our technology is encouraging us to do that. Yeah, it I really mean, is. Yeah, phones, TV, uh, social media. I mean, all, all these things. And your phone's always trying to, whatever it is, Instagram, uh, Snapchat, Facebook, all of these things. Sucks you right in. Right. It's a different movie. It's a, it's a drug. Yeah, it is. Makes you wonder what was the biggest distractions that they had a hundred years ago, you know, because <clears throat> those things you just named are, you know, those are Goliaths to, that we're dealing with today that takes our attention away on a daily basis. And that question, you know, a hundred years ago, what was their biggest thing? Was it reading? Was it books or was it hanging around the campfire or <clears throat> just having to work and to, to stay afloat? You know, I, I'm curious what their Goliath was back then. Yeah, I mean, so you're talking the so probably twenties, so yeah, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, I imagine you had to work a little bit harder for one. Yeah, I mean, you probably had news, you probably had magazines or newspapers and maybe other forms of 
kind of uh, mindless consumption, maybe. Mm-hmm. Gambling halls. Yeah. yeah that kind of stuff. The like, saloon. Yeah, the yeah. saloon was probably a big one. I'm uh, sure that there's, there were other like mindless checkout points as opposed to like 100 years ago. It wasn't all this, so everyone was just reading spiritual texts you know yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> or pondering about life and enlightenment now i'm sure they had their their own form of exit points just because like it's human nature to want to check out or want to go towards that excitement or those pleasurable experiences and so i'm sure like the majority has always had some kind of hook now it's just it's just greater than ever yeah it's in your pocket all the time everything you need yeah instant gratification abundance of it in your pocket all the time well and it would have been i mean daydreaming right um you know anybody's mind totally separate from uh technology can always go somewhere like that right yeah they can That's a good point and then and it really also just depends like daydreaming can be good and maybe it can be bad it's like daydreaming's good if you're in your imagination and thinking of positive, creative things, daydreaming can be bad when it's in the form of worry or and anxiety. It's like the same mechanism at work. Absolutely. Used two dramatically different ways. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what, where their mindset was a hundred years ago. I don't know. I mean, if it was sitting in a, in a, in a fear, a fearful state, then it was probably more polarized towards the anxiety and and uh yeah the pole as opposed to the constructive creative pole and see i don't i don't know that's a good point you know because I, I think fear is always at least from the written human history that i've seen it looks like fear has kind of been embedded in humanity and had a film over our perception i do question sometimes you know as we evolve as a collective, do you guys think that we have less fear than we used to back in the day, say a hundred, a couple hundred years ago? Do you guys think we've evolved to have less fear? It's tough. I feel like it can go both ways. Cause for one, I want to say yes, just because more of our lower needs are met. Kind of, if you think about like the hierarchy of needs, I feel like, nowadays we're in a place where like the shelter the food a lot of those basic ones are met so you don't have to you don't have to necessarily fear that like you would maybe hundreds of years ago where you'd have to fear that you know an indian tribe was going to come ramsack your home mm-hmm. or you weren't going to be able to eat because you couldn't you couldn't have a good hunt or you know what i mean yeah but now the other the part that pulls me the other way is just like now we have the world in our pocket so we see all of the negativity and so there's a lot to create fear that way too so i don't know maybe it kind of goes up in equal proportions and there are existential fears now that didn't exist before is we've got this phone telling us you know that yeah this is going on in taiwan this is going on in ukraine this is going on in israel and there's that threat i mean grew up in the cold war right of thermonuclear annihilation that that you know, some kind of events completely separate from you, way far away from you could destroy everything. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Like there was more rational fears back in the day, like winter is coming and do we have food stored back and, you know, smallpox, things like that were yeah. probably a little more rational to now there's kind of fear peddled from above mm -hmm. to keep us in a divided state. You right. Know? It's not like not getting eaten by a lion. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, speaking of kind of like the retro things that are coming back that you said you grew up in. Um, the red scare and that's kind of came back now to where it seems like the red scare like be scared of russia and all that mm -hmm. like that's kind of come back in full circle to where i'm sure my parents and and you probably remember from being a small kid that it's probably a similar narrative to what we're hearing now i, I, I would assume definitely well and they taught us in school um that you just have to get under your plywood desk that was really they had drills uh you know about uh, yeah, a war, and you were supposed to get under your plywood desk. Is that for like a nuclear blast? Yeah, exactly. Well, I heard. <laughs> I'm, like I'm assuming they put a bunch of lead in those desks. Yeah, 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 super sturdy desk. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I saw. I mean, it was just like a year or two ago. They were telling everyone. I know it was going on in New York. It was like a broadcast they were putting out. They're saying, if, in case of a nuclear blast, just get away from the windows. Just get away from. The <laughs> it's like okay, that's 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 what we're doing here. No desks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just seems like lip service. Yeah. Right. Don't be scared. Just stay with the windows. Right. It's like at that point, you don't even need to say anything. Just yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like making a comment just to make a comment or doing right. something just to do it. Yeah, we're looking out for you. Don't worry. <laughs> Thanks. Stop. Um, I got to go by, um, there was the archaeological dig on 112. Did you guys see that? Uh -uh. So, well, just talking about what people... Is, is that over by Mount Comfort? Um, not too far from there. It's 112. Really, I'm trying to picture where 112 is. Um, so it, it turns into Garland. Um, but it runs north and south. Uh, so it runs by the Blessings Golf Course. Mm. So just past the Blessings, if you're going north, they're, they're going to widen it, right? And so they want to do, I think, a roundabout there which we all know how Americans are terrified by roundabouts. We don't know what we're doing. Um, <laughs> so complicated. <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but so essentially in order to do that is there's federal money for an archeological dig. And um, so it's, it's Reed Valley road. And um, there was an, a native American settlement there for thousands and thousands of years uh, but I got to go by there and talk to the head archaeologist. He's a guy named Jack Rosen. And, um, you know, they were pulling things out of the ground and doing all these things. And it was just, it was really interesting to sit there and, and talk to them. And they're, of course, they're trying to recreate what life was like, understand what it was like. And he believes 10,000 years old, wow. um, that particular site. Um, but, you know, there was a, there's a spring, there's a natural spring there. Um, so obviously that was, you know, humanity always has, has been around water. But no, it, it is interesting to think about um, what were their fears? What were they doing? You know, what was life like for all of these different cultures? And, and it may have been many different cultures. There's not, there's no reason to think it was all homogenous. You know, somebody could have used it, that been in that area for that spring a thousand years ago. And then completely different group, you know, 9,000 years before that. That's, yeah, that's, that's super fascinating. Could you see any of the, like the stuff that they were pulling out? Was it pretty covered and stuff? Or could you kind of decipher what it was? So um, they found, yeah, so like a hearth. So essentially they were making, so they had buildings. Um, they had, you know, floors that you could see. Um, and, and then 
uh, yeah, it was funny. Uh, they said in the eighties, the, uh, guy had done irrigation and gone, had gone straight through a hearth and didn't know it. Like had used like a little excavator or something and dug it out. I had no idea, but, um, but yeah, so I mean, they had, they had buildings where they were obviously warming and, you know, avoiding the winter and things like that. But, um, no, it, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to think about, um, cultures going back that far. And we don't, we know so very little. I mean, the best we can do is make educated guesses. And that's an interesting part about that too, is it shows that like, even if you own a house or own a land, you're really just renting it. Like 10,000 years from now, it's not going to be yours. Yeah, right. Probably not going to be your family's. It's it's going to be, a, there's going to be a highway being built over it. Yeah, right. I'm going to dig up my stove one day. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that someone lived here. Yeah. And then it's just gone and lost in history. And I think that's a, yeah, tout not to get, yeah, really too attached to anything because it puts it into perspective when we're looking at stuff 10,000 years ago, how, what a blimp this is. What a, just a smidge in the grand history of, yeah, all that is like, it's just, you're here and then you're gone and everything you owned, everything you were, it's just, you know, dirt. Yeah. The only constant. Yeah, future Jeff looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the only constant is change. Yeah. And no, it, I, I've thought about that. I mean, you, you are in such a beautiful spot here out in, in nature. Um, and there are deer, I'm sure walking through your place all the time, yeah. you know, generations ago were uh, the, the ancestors of the deer here. And in another thousand years, you know, that, that deer's ancestors will probably be here. Well, yours. Yeah. So it's like, to your point. Yeah. Are, are we just renting this place? Yeah, it could even be said like we're borrowing slash renting everything, including our body. You know, right. it's all gonna go back into the dirt, and, and and in the way that I look at it, we'll be back again, borrowing another body, borrowing another vessel, reincarnation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts you on reincarnation, Jeff? I am very open to it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, I obviously. Uh, with yeah, Buddhism, Hinduism, um, you know, two of the world's biggest religions, they believe in it. Um, yeah. If, if you, have you discussed this much on the podcast? Where were you guys at on it? I feel like we've dabbled around it a little bit. Yeah, I feel like couple. at least once I, I can remember yeah. we touched on it. Yeah, it's hard not to bring it up. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm for it. It seems like it makes sense when you look at nature and you look at natural law kind of everything's in cycles everything kind of repeats itself endlessly and i mean if you look at as above so below too and you look at your breath and you look at your sleep cycle look at your heartbeat everything has this living and dying phase but then it comes back and lives again and so it just just looking off that you would think that it would just make sense it would make sense that that would repeat itself on a larger scale like life. Right. I, I definitely believe we are uh, eternal beings having a physical experience. Same. Yeah, I'm reading this book right now uh, by Leo Russell, and it's called Why You Cannot Die. And it's basically her making her case for reincarnation. And I'm not too far into the book, but one of the fascinating points that she brought up is, like you was saying with the law of correspondence, that 
on a daily basis, we kind of reincarnate by going into our dream state and then mm. coming back with a fresh start. And in that dream state, when you come back, generally you don't remember anything. So it's similar to how you would go into the afterlife, commune with divinity, and then come back and not remember, but have a fresh start and be able to grow and have your lessons again. And, the, you know, that's like a simplified version of kind of what she was dishing out, but <clears throat> it really hit because I never considered reincarnation that as above so below that we kind of experience that every night we do yeah you get into that theta state Mm -hmm. right yeah do you guys um work on like interpreting your dreams do you get meaning through your dreams i honestly don't dream very much at all and if i do i don't remember it Mm. yeah i mean that i mean i i i dream but i haven't ever really extensively like looked and analyzed them too much Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it'd be cool. I think it might be a way to to peek into some of the subconscious. Um, I've noticed like in during phases when I do keep a dream journal, it's easier to remember it. So if you're ever trying to remember your dream journal, just by waking up each morning and jotting a few things down, it like makes your mind recall take, it. Yeah, you get in the habit of, like in the future, your mind is like, okay, I need to write this down in the morning, so I'm going to remember it. And so you find yourself being able to see them a little clearer. I see. But I've, I've, I've always thought that'd be cool to really jump in. I think it's just a hard habit to get into because like first thing in the morning, like last thing you want to do is whip out a notebook start and start trying. writing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, you wake up and the monkey mind is going. You're like, I've got to do this and this and this and this and this. And then, and you, yeah, you don't think about the dreams. Which is interesting. You brought that kind of how you put that you wake up and the monkey mind's going i think it's uh something fascinating that i've noticed is that there's certain periods lots of times when i'm like and i wake up in a new place there'll be a lag between me waking up and my whole story kicking in to where like there might be a couple seconds where i like, don't know who i am i don't know where i am I don't know. And then boom, the story kicks in. And it's interesting because it's like that little place, that little window, it's almost like a, a little taste of samadhi, that that thoughtless state. And then it shows and then our mind kicks in and it has all these stories. You are so and so, you're you know, you live this place, you've been alive for this long, you know, you're these are your friends, these are your families, this is what you like, this is what you don't like. But all those are just thoughts. All those are just these stories that are going on in your head and when those stories are absent only then do you get a glimpse of of reality you get a glimpse of the present moment and then boom the monkey and then it kicks in and then you're just flooded with kind of information of story overload and uh, i don't know if you guys have ever experienced anything like that but it is kind of an interesting peek into that realm do you feel like that every day? No, 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 no. Just every once in a while, and I'm like, wow, that was that was interesting. Wow. Like I said, usually it's it's if I'm like staying at a, uh, if I'm staying at a hotel or something, like something that's out of the ordinary. Where right when I wake up, it's like, whoa, this is different. It it almost it causes a lag between the whole story coming together, but then it kicks in all at once, and it's like the mind, it's like the brain kicks in. It's like it was off for a second, and it's a it's a very weird surreal feeling to be in that place of limbo where you do, you're, you don't have any labels you're just you're you are literally consciousness and that's 
it's almost like it's blissful because you don't have it's the stories that cause all the tension and pain in our lives when when those are gone i mean all that's left is that that satchit ananda the i don't know if you've come up if you've heard that term in the in the eastern philosophy study but it's basically i think it's consciousness bliss and there's one other word consciousness bliss and it's basically just like the essence of who we really who and what we really are and uh yeah it's kind of cool to i wish i could just live in that place at least gives you gives gave me a taste on like what's possible yeah i love that it's like uh <clears throat> i call that like you know there's so many words for that um but i, I feel like that i kind of relate with calling that like the true self you know and you just have that true self moment before you get into that personality story and then it all comes flowing in that all these things that we've been prescribed, you know, meanings of items around us and how we're supposed to carry ourselves and all these things are kind of distractions, you know, that it does, you know, getting back to that present moment, it seems like that's the way to kind of detach from that, you know, and, you know, when, when you see the alarm clock, when you wake up, you don't have these memories of alarm clock and what someone told you that means you can kind of just acknowledge what an alarm clock actually is mm. and, and move on. Yeah, you know? that's a good point. Uh, yeah, triggers when you when you see the alarm clock or when you see anything, your mind just immediately makes a million associations that it's had with that thing. And I know in, in uh, Buddhism, they have something called just tree. And it's just like this idea of like yeah like when you look at a tree getting to that place where you just see the tree you don't you're not thinking about the time you climbed a tree you know and your subconscious is like that that time i climbed a tree and when i was in fifth grade and i almost fell or that that time that uh you know that that tree limb fell on my house or like the million different stories you have with trees that the mind wants to rush in and flood you with as opposed to just seeing this beautiful thing for just like what it is yeah i had a buddy tell me this past weekend we were having a similar conversation to this and he said you know they say that once you teach a child what a cloud is that's the last time they actually see a cloud i was like damn that's that's wild and it made me think that you know what it, i forget which religion it is but yahweh how you're not you know it's like the unspoken name and i i think that's kind of in the same vein they don't want to box in this name and you to have these prescribed definitions to it and all that and instead just experiencing what the spirit of that thing is yeah i think it's a good point because you the name is can never touch the reality of what it is a name is just a symbol all it is is a symbol and so if you're lost and then if you're get caught on the name, you're just living in a world of symbols. And so you're, you're further from reality because a symbol can only exist in your mind. So instead of experiencing reality for what it is, you're back in that mental matrix that's out of the show, that's out of the present moment, that's just in this, this flawed ideas and, and symbols that are completely really and a lot of for a lot of people irrelevant to what reality is because once you have a symbol it can be tainted it can be you know a tree can be a horrible thing for you because of a bad memory you have it with a tree it could be a positive memory for me because of like good experiences i've had with the tree and so 
yeah, instead of being able to look at it and just enjoy the beauty of it in the here and now, in the present moment, yeah, we're, we're casting labels on it that's blocking us from seeing that. And the tree is just an example. I think it starts being more profound when you start applying that to literally everything in your field of awareness and like everyone in your field of awareness. It's like you start to see how you're just living in these boxes. And I don't know. I don't know. I think that that's it's it feels constricting to live like that. Do y'all feel like we're always telling ourselves stories, you know, about ourselves, about our For lives, sure. about who we are? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Human nature. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I definitely think that we do. And I, I feel like that's the cause of a lot of anxiety and depression is you know, generally just telling yourself false stories or, you know, running with a narrative that may not have no logic or base to it at all. Right. But it's just something that maybe, you know, you have a, uh, maybe you're not confident in a certain area or, you know, we've all had those conversations where we'll mill over them for a week in our head and little things like that, but the other person doesn't even think about it, you know? So it's so interesting to see how these stories, you know, we all have our own little story we're telling in our head. And if you don't get a grip on it, it can really run amok and, and run, take your whole mental game off. Definitely. Where I guess it has the potential to put your mental game on too, if you're telling yourself the right story. The right story. Sure. That, I mean, that's manifesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That you, you know, you, you manifest, you create the own reality in your head. Um, there's a, I, I, I like reading on different religions, older religions. Uh, are you guys familiar with uh, Zoroastrianism? No, yeah, I've heard of that. That's a real old one. Very old, yeah. So considered the world's oldest monotheistic religion. One of first. Yeah, so in Persia, so like modern day Iran. So uh, Zoroastrianism, uh, the three tenets are good thoughts, good words, good deeds. So again, you back to the, the manifestation, literally it's what your mind creates. So if you create positivity, if you create love, happiness, abundance, and then you, then that will turn into good words and then that will turn into good deeds, but it all starts with good thoughts. I like the simplicity of that, right? Yes. Yeah, genius yeah. in that simplicity. It really is. Especially with putting thoughts as the primary, you know, cause like right. you said, it that's, all follows. That's after the that. beginning. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And how hard it is to control those things. Definitely. Sure. And we all struggle with it. I don't, I don't care who it is. Yeah. It's the, the Dalai Lama himself. Um, you know, everybody has to, you know, work on, on grounding and centering and being positive and yeah, putting out, putting out good into the world. I, I think that's, that, that's really all any of us can do. I, I feel like uh, if you put out good energy, it will come back to you. I think that's mostly the basis of every religion right yeah. of what jesus said what the buddha said um yeah it, it, if you put good energy out in every way that you can it comes back to you 100 percent. sowing those good seeds right which is consistent work you know i know we've touched on that before but it's that's something that always strikes me is like it, it's non-stop consistent work that you to to really be on top of your thoughts you know because I've heard a number that we have around like 30,000 thoughts a day, you know, <laughs> I know I've never caught all of them. That's for freaking sure. You know, I've caught a good percentage. What but... if you had a thought counter and you had a clicker, you know, one, oh, there's another one. Click, 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 yeah, click. Right. How many times would you do <laughs> Yeah, right. You have a tired thumb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have enough trouble focusing on my breath. So I don't know. The clicker, I think that'd be out in an hour. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, and so e- they're so subtle too. That's the thing. I mean, you could try to be the watcher, but then, you know, four hours can go by and you were lost in your thoughts the whole time. And then you're like, oh shoot, I'm supposed to be watching these things. Like I was just, uh, focusing on something negative for an hour there and I didn't even realize it. And so I think that's kind of the essence too of the spiritual path. I think it's, it's not as like glamorous as the ego wants it to be. I mean, I, I really think it's just kind of this, I mean, when you think about raising your consciousness, like what it like consciousness is almost attention. And so you're, you're moving from this place of being lost in thoughts to where there's no separation between you and your thoughts and they're running amok to there's a little gap be- so you can see actually what's going on. And so you're not completely identified with that. You're not lost in the form. And then as you progress on the spiritual path, I think that that gap maybe increases. There becomes a little more and more separation. And as you have that more separation, well, then you start gaining a little bit more of an ability to to sway them one way or the other by, you know, if you're thinking about negative, you can counteract it by, you know, changing your polarity to focusing on the positive other half of that. But yeah, if you're so lost in thought that you don't even realize you're lost in thought, well, that's like, that's the collective unconscious. That's kind of the default state where people, you just have people live in their lives completely being ran by their, their, their stories that we were talking about with no, there's no separation being between that higher self and those stories that are running our lives. And so I think that's why mindfulness is kind of a, it's a, a practice that's gaining a little more traction just because of the simplicity of it. It's just, you know, watching your thoughts, creating that separation. Cause unless you create that separation, there's, there's no hope of breaking away from the chains of that almost mental slavery in a lot of ways. Mm, that's a good way to put it. I, I mean, I, I experienced it today is uh, with some coworkers literally talking about the middle East situation and then, you know, going back from that to, you know, doing what I needed to do. And it was just, there was just negativity, you know, like, processes that should have been easier became harder, right? Um, One thing um, that my wife and I do is talk about uh, daily gratitude is come up is, and try to do this every day, I need to be better about it, but um, is come up with three things that you're grateful for that day. Um, And and then say it, speak it, or, you know, send it out over text. Um, I was reading how that the, the part of the brain where fear resides is also the same part of the brain where gratitude is. So it can't be doing both at once. So, you know, you think about existential threats of, you know, thermonuclear war. Well, okay, stop for a second and think about what you're grateful for. Yeah. Um, and if you do that, then all of a sudden, okay, you, you know, that, that brings you back, brings you back to where you need to be. Yeah. I love that. Cause I feel like you know, there's uh, the polar opposites of fear and love. And I don't know if love resides in that same spot, but when I think of gratitude, I think of having a love for life, a love for your present moment, a love for the life that you've been gifted, you know? And I think that's really powerful to be able to go into that spot. And I could see how it could override that fear, mm. you know, override that that fear mechanism that we can allow to run the show is just by hopping into the driver's seat and saying, no, actually, I'm going to turn into love here instead. You know, I feel like that's at the core of our choices that we have throughout life. I feel like you can usually boil it down to one of those two. Which one are you choosing? Right. And it's kind of one of those things, too, if you're not if you're not grateful 
being here in America and just living in a, just like the average American right now compared to maybe the, that the rest of the world, the average person in the rest of the world. And there's so much to be grateful for. If you can't be grateful just for like f- pretty much unlimited food and a safe house, I mean, even just that right there. I mean, most people don't have that. Clean and, water. Yeah, I mean, clean think, water. Think about those basic things. Right. The parts of the world that don't have clean water. That, yeah. That this is, would be a dream. Right. And so like if we get in this habit of not consciously practicing the gratitude, it's like, what do you think you're just going to one day be grateful when you have it, when you have it all? Like there, right. you, you have it all. You're in the 1% of the world right now, whether you realize it or not. And so that's something that uh, uh, realization I had not too long ago, but still kind of needs reminding to go back to that place of gratitude it's easy to forget but it's like it's a sliding scale if you can't be grateful now you almost never will be and then if you if you if you can never be grateful well then you're own you're always going to be coming from a place of of lack of discontentment and that's a uh that's not a good place to to operate from there's a that's not it feels like there's a void in your life when you're in that place it's like you you feel like you need something to make you happy to make you content with this present moment but the more you do the gratitude well then it's just you know just you know having a normal day just waking up next to your your significant other and there being sunshine just Mm -hmm. becomes a very pleasurable experience and so i think the goal is to practice it more and more to where just being alive is you're, you're joyful and it's like anything on top of that is just a cherry on top and if we can get to where that's where we're truly operating from wow it'd be a it'd be a nice place yeah I, and i think what you just spoke to the heart of materialism and addiction in that um yeah if you're always searching for something outside of yourself right the buddhism for instance teaches all true happiness comes from within if you're always searching for something outside of yourself, you know, it's purchasing this, it's, you know, getting another drink, getting another fix of, you know, whatever that addiction is. Um, you know, it's just that perpetual cycle, you know, one, one is too many 99 is not enough. (laughs) And there's always going to be that next thing that you're reaching for. Yeah. You know, you mentioned manifesting earlier and I feel like gratitude is one of the more potent feelings that we can go into, you know, and especially if you are intentionally trying to bring things into your life, I feel like that's almost like it has like a magnetic nature to it that if we're in love with the life that we have now and love the situation and the things that we have and are grateful for those at the base of it, I feel like that magnetic principle of gratitude just pulls in those extra things. And it kind of just keeps stacking on itself where you feel even more gratitude, more gratitude because things keep coming in. I feel like the the cause, you know, everything that we experience is it's all, it's all effect, you know? So I feel like when you can grow into gratitude and just recognize the cause of everything that you're content with it and you're in love with life, I feel like that's a great spot to be in a great spot to ask for more out of this world. Absolutely. I'll give you my, my daily gratitude. Yeah. I would love to hear it. So I'm, I'm grateful that I've gotten to make, Two new friends, Mr. Pronoia. Um, no, I've, I've really enjoyed, yeah, getting to getting to know you guys and finally getting to sit down 
Um, I am grateful that my wife is an exceptional cook and, uh, yeah. And, and so I know when I get out of here, we'll, she'll have something whipped up. Um, yeah, she's, she is very good at, um, making new things and going off into left field and, uh, she'll say, okay, will you trust me on this one? And I always, always say implicitly, you know, go, go rogue. Um, yes. Some trust there. Yeah. She's got a good record. (laughs) Right. Right. So I'm grateful for, for new friends. I'm grateful for my, my wife, the amazing cook. And I'm grateful that it's fall in Arkansas because it was 105 degrees here and that was unpleasant. And so, yeah, fall here is wonderful. Like we'll have an awesome leaf change, cool breeze. Yeah, it's a great time of year. It's beautiful. It's ideal this time of year. For sure. Yeah, I would love to get my three as well. Um, having this project and be able to bring new people in and, and make friends, I think I'd, I'd like to, to double down on that as well. This has been so much fun and enlightening and just getting to hear other people's perspective on the world and also therapeutic, just being able to open up and be vulnerable and, and talk to people that I adore and explain where I'm at in life. And we're all growing together by it. Another one would be where I'm at in my life in general. And, and mainly by that, I'm, I mean, spiritually, I'm in a really good spot, just happy, content with life. You know, speaking of gratitude, I'm just very grateful for the spot that I'm in. Uh, the third would be my health. You know, I, I don't, you know, I've always thought like, even if I'm a multi-billionaire, if I'm bedridden, what it, what is it all worth, you know, and be able to just have the basic tenet of health. Um, I feel like can be overlooked a lot. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Definitely. It, it's such a blessing that is so easy to take for granted. Yeah, that's beautiful. It really is. It's like, you don't really realize it until you're, even if you just got a cold, it's like, wow. It was so nice when my nose wasn't cleared, wasn't stuffed up <laughs> a couple of days ago. And it's yeah. like, like the slightest thing you can only imagine um, kind of worst ailments and how much that throws you off. Talk about your peace of mind being gone. So, yeah, I'll, I'll throw that in there as well. Uh, and the health and vitality of just the people around me, too. That's another huge one to not have the, the burden of of that hanging over you, um, especially the people in your, in your immediate world is, is very something to be grateful for. Uh, I, I, I too like this creative outlet. It's something I always get re-ramped up dabbling in. It's like you have your normal day-to-day stuff, but anytime you have something that is in line with the passion of, for me, I like just, yeah, digging deep and having good conversations and seeing what other people's beautiful thoughts are that extend beyond just, you know, how's, how's the day going? How's the, how's the weather outside? I think that it's powerful to have a medium to be able to dabble in that. And then uh, the third one would be, I just moved into that new house. So I'm really liking that a lot. It's given me more time to to pour into stuff like this, other stuff that I just value more in life right now. And, uh, I think, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's special. And that's what I like about the, the gratitude, even something as simple as like you said, the, the fall, 
it's yeah. turning fall. It's like the more you can strip back and find gratitude in those simpler things, well, then you start to notice it more throughout your days. So it's almost you're, you're training your attention to then focus on more, which then brings more because a lot of it's perspective. And so what you focus on grows. So if all you're focusing on are these positive things you're grateful for, well, then your whole world just becomes that. And I think that that's, that's it's just, it's special. Uh, my, me and my wife had a habit for a while. We fell off a little bit, but we have a rock that, uh, it was an exercise I got in a book that I really liked. It's like each night before bed, you have this rock and you, you, uh, you each hold the rock and say what your favorite part of the day was. Mm. And, and then you give them the rock and they do it as well. And so like even a simple exercise like that, for one, right before you go to bed, you're forced to think of all the good things that happen. So it's kind of, if it impregnates that sense of gratitude right in that moment. And then something that was also interesting that I noticed that after we did it for a while, we started to just be more aware throughout our days. So like even during the day, it's like, oh, that's going to be a rock moment. I can already tell. Oh, that's going to be a rock memory. And it, it could be the simplest stuff too. Like, you know, we're we're walking and there's a, a, a song being, being blared uh, a little bit of ways, but we can hear it. And then we just do like a little dance. And it might only take like five seconds, but it's, that could instantly that could be a highlight of a day and it was cool to notice that most of the time it was those little little things that were the highlights it wasn't like the big it wasn't the big thing that happened that day like you would think it was more of those everyday little slice of life moments that nine times out of ten those were the rock moments yeah and which is yeah kind of paradoxical in a lot of ways i love that yeah it's the little things yeah, every now and then Maria, you know, she she has a good habit that when we're cooking dinner together, she'll ask me, what was your favorite part of the day? And I don't have anyone else in my life that asked me that. And I really love that question because it makes you search through your day and like replay what has happened and what you are grateful for. And a lot of the times, you know, we can just go through our day and not really reflect on any of it. But that's one of my favorite questions she asked me on just really centers me and, and lets me think about yeah, that was my favorite. And how can I implement that more? Or how can I bring that more into my life on a daily basis? Mm. You know, one I heard was a, a gentleman talking about why he had such good kids. And he said, at the end of each day, he asked them uh, the same questions. And it's, uh, what is one thing that you did kind for someone else? And what is one kind thing that someone else that you observe someone else doing? And so again, you know, that perception of your, you're looking you're looking for those things. You can look for terrible things and you're going to find them all day long. Uh, it's so, it's so easy. Yeah. Too easy. Liter literally, if I, yeah, I turned on my phone and went to my newsfeed, the very top thing is going to be terrible. There's no question. <laughs> yeah, right. But if you start looking for good, then, uh, you know, it just shifts your whole mindset. Yeah. I love that. And this, I think I've touched on it before on this podcast in a previous one, but these these books I've been reading from this guy named Paul Selig, his main thing is he has three mantras that's kind of like the core basis of his teaching. And it's, I know who I am in truth. I know what I am in truth. And I know how I serve in truth. And I know who I am. I'm of divinity. 
what I am is I am divinity manifested in form here. And how I serve, which is why I bring this up, because how I serve kind of plays in the same vein that I serve by recognizing that everything is of divinity. So you're recognizing your heaven on earth. And I feel like just by trying to keep that mind frame of trying to reclaim divinity in everything you see, you're automatically grateful for things. You automatically look in the good for things. And there's a lot of power in that. And he says that everything reverberates back to you of divinity as well. And it's it's kind of like an ecosystem that when you call it out, and I've noticed many times situations can ease and and uh, you know people around me seem to be raised to a, a different level and good conversations come up, things that I'm in need of that I may even not recognize flow into my life easier. There's a lot of stuff that comes from these mantras, but I feel like if you're just, it, it makes a really good practice on just looking for the good in the world and calling out the good in the world. It's something we should all do daily. Mm-hmm. It's very powerful. Yeah. And then we get, yeah, we get kicked off with all the distractions. It's like these little habits that, yeah, make so much, so make so much sense or so simple to do. But yet if we allow ourselves to be sucked in by all the distractions, well, that stuff becomes so much harder or it just becomes less appealing. It's like if your dopamine is fried from scrolling, well, keeping a gratitude journal probably isn't going to be the funnest thing for you to do. Like, you know, right. <laughs> because right. a lot of those benefits happen over time. And there, a lot of it's, you know, training the way you think, training your that system in your brain that is in charge of paying attention to stuff throughout your day. And it's like, yeah. So, I, I mean, I feel for the struggles of anyone trying to take on a habit like that that isn't maybe isn't as uh, glossy and fun as opening TikTok would be. Right. Yeah, you talked about opening your phone and you know seeing some terrible things and TikTok's mentioned. And I feel like that's, you know, it's such available to us that it's, it's hard to completely take it out. But I've noticed for me, when I'm more discerning for the media that I let in or the content in general that I let into my life, it is a lot easier to keep the good thoughts. And whenever I, you know, if I wake up and I get on my phone and I take in 20, 30 minutes of content that may not be the best, that stuff seeps up all day long. Mm -hmm. it, you know, like you said, whether you're talking about a war or whatever it is, that it just kind of bubbles up here and there. And it's, it's a lot more, you have to be a lot more conscious of like swatting those thoughts away, you know, rather than it, again, coming back to, I need to, me personally, I need to teach myself more discernment on the content that I let into my life because I think it would be a lot easier to have those good thoughts and stay present. Yeah, I think that's discernment we all have to work on like daily, mm. moment to moment. Because, yeah, you, you let your guard down for a second. And, uh, yeah, it's like that. that's the almost the path of least resistance is that negative stuff coming in. And also just like, when you're around people, you're just like trying to sway conversations positively because it's just so easy to get on a get on a tangent for something that's negative, whether it's your family, your significant other, your friends. And so being conscious of that, I think, is very important, too, because it all matters. It's like every single thing you're around, every single thing you consume matters so much more than we would think. So, Jeff, dude, you brought some books with you. Yeah. 
what you got? You got some interesting thoughts to to share with us? Well, so yeah, one of the things that we touched on, um, I, I think it was in the sauna. Um, well, was the the hearings, the so the hearings on Capitol Hill uh, in Congress, uh, David Grush, uh, Commander Fra- David Fravor, and Lieutenant Ryan Graves. So um, those three gentlemen, and Grush is an Air Force veteran. Um, those three gentlemen uh, all co- testified in front of Congress about our involvement with non-human intelligences. And it is one of the things that I feel like has been so ignored uh, by corporate media, kind of swept under the rug. So Grush, for instance, he is, uh, so the the intelligence community inspector general, so that is the arbiter uh, in this case uh, for whistleblowers. So he filed for whistleblower protection, uh, saying that he was going to come forth, saying that there is a an illegal program uh, devoid of congressional oversight uh, that is reverse engineering non-human technology. And the the intelligence community inspector general found that claim credible and urgent. So, and then his lawyer uh, is also the former intelligence community inspector general. So this is two ICIGs that have endorsed what he's saying. Uh, and he was under oath. So, you know, one of the books I bought, uh, brought with me, so <laughs> Philip, Colonel Philip Corso. Uh, so, so he was, <clears throat> this book came out in 97, the day after Roswell. So Colonel Corso, the Senator Strom Thurmond wrote the forward to this book. This is the closest thing that we've ever had to a deathbed confessional in book form. It was published in 97. I think he died in 98. So he was working in um, uh, foreign technology. So at the time, so foreign technology is, so when we get something from whoever it is, so CIA, DIA, whoever has come up with uh, some form of technology, could it come from an ally, could it come from an enemy, who knows? but he was working there in 47. Uh, and so his claims are that we recovered a craft uh, as, as the, the Army Air Force said on, on uh, let's see. So it was July 8th of 47. Uh, Army Air Force captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. So that, that essentially we buried that story, you know, that was the official version from the army that came out. And then later on, uh, there was, we, they said that it was a weather balloon that made somebody pose with some mylar and tried to sweep it under, under the rug. But he says that is where we got the technology for microchips. That's where we got the technology for night vision uh, and for Kevlar, that we reverse engineered craft and they had non-humans in them. Uh, so. But, you know, essentially he, he published the book and then died very shortly thereafter. What Grush, what he's saying uh, goes along with everything that Corso said, uh, only he's doing that as a, as a 40-year-old under oath. So under penalty of spending his life in prison, said that in front of the United States Congress. And I feel like that has been completely ignored by most corporate media because it's in something that's very inconvenient. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I watched some of that. I didn't watch all of it. <clears throat> I know that a lot of people are 
it's interesting because a lot of people I talk to whenever when you talk about that hearing, they're like, yeah, duh, there's aliens. But then the other people are like, yeah, they're trying to fake some stuff. Mm. Look out, you know? So it's interesting seeing both sides of the spectrum of, you know, some people believe it, but the other people are saying, yeah, we believe there's aliens, but not from these guys. Yeah. You know, I don't know where I fall in line on it. I mean, it, it seems like Grush is technically an insider, right? Definitely. Yeah. And his, it sounds like his lawyer and the guy who's doing the whistleblower protection thing, they're also insiders. So I can see where some of the skepticism comes from and why I can understand why people have a lack of trust in institutions like that. I definitely fall on the side of like, yeah, I, I truly believe there's aliens out there. And especially after the Mexico came out and they kind of showed some aliens that they had mm. recently, just about a month ago. So it's like these things are starting to culminate to... I definitely believe there's aliens and it's been kept a secret for a long time. My question is how come it's all coming out now, you know? Right. And, and also what was, what is the reasoning behind the intention to keep it secret from us? You know, did they think we would freak out or. Right. Well, and, and that's an excellent question. So I, you know, so 47 and, and I try to put myself in their shoes at the time. So say you're in charge of, of the army 1947. So we're at the height of the cold war. Um, you know, we are now setting off more and more powerful nuclear weapons. Uh, and we don't want, so say we've got some technology that is light years ahead of ours. You cannot tell your allies without telling your enemies. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't, I sit here, it, you know, it's easy. It's so easy to sit here and cast judgment on somebody else. Right. Um, but yeah, if you, you put me in charge in 1947, I, I might've done the exact same thing. Hey, we got to walk this back. There's mm -hmm. no flying saucer. Get some, get some Mylar out there. Get Jesse Marcel. We're going to tell him it was a weather balloon and like, let's make this go away before the Soviets, all their spies come and try to get this tag. I see. It's a good point. It's like a dog. Cause it's a dog eat dog world back then, especially. And like, there's wars going on. You have enemies, you know, that. That's your big fish. It's not like be one thing if the whole world was kumbaya and then they're wanting to keep a secret. But I think that they're yeah, it makes sense that there's there's bigger plays that need to be need to have been thought about than, you know, we just need to inform them public. It's like, well, like you were saying, you can't you can't inform your, your allies without <laughs> informing your enemies. And, right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, there's been this uh, thought that's always that well, put out there of, well, maybe these are just, this is somebody else's tech. Well, okay, 1947. Um, do you know the condition of the Chinese Air Force in 1947? It didn't exist. Uh, Russia, so, I mean, you know, here they are. They just had their flagship sunk by a country with no Navy. Do we think they have technology that's light years ahead of ours? I, I don't think it's reasonable to, to think that. So, um, you know, and, and one thing Grush uh, said, he doesn't use the word alien. I wouldn't either because that denote that assumes origin. I, they try to use the word non-human, you know, ultra, ultra terrestrial, something that w was here long before us in the seas, something else, uh, interdimensional. All these things are possible. Um, I certainly don't know. I don't have the answers in that regard. But 
I think it's pretty clear that there's something we, we there has definitely been a, a large amount of information withheld from us for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. At a very basic reason, I I would assume that these UAPs, that's what they're called now. Right. Yeah. We rebranded. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> UFO. Yeah. Yeah. Unidentified aerial phenomenon. UAP. Okay. Yeah. I would willing, I'd be willing to bet these UAPs do not run on gasoline either. Sure. So that's probably another nice little reason not to get that information out there because once it's out in the ether that these things tap into a zero point energy field or have other means of propulsion that we are not familiar with. And especially if it's a non-combustion engine, I mean, you know, our, our dollars based on the Petro. So I mean, it shakes the whole foundation of, of what we have. So who knows, you know, what, what kind of technology we have out there, but I, I'd be willing to bet that's one of the reasons that we're not willing, they're not willing to give that technology out right now. Yeah. Well, and zero point energy could theoretically be a weapon that would destroy the whole planet. So uh, yeah, again, like to that point of if you literally gave that to everyone, how long would it take Hamas to, to, to use it or, or someone? Yeah. That's a really good point. I think if, if things got to a point where we needed to see that technology for, you know, national security or something like that, I, I would be willing to bet we see technologies come out that blow our mind and we had no idea were even available. But again, I don't, it's one of those, you don't want to show your ace of spades too early and let it on the ether that there, there is these potentials of technology out there because once that's, widely known there is potentials of great technologies out there people can kind of reverse engineer and you know you can kind of use deductive reasoning to kind of come down to all right let's get a team together and start working on this you know right. we'll start here at the very least right well and and one thing that is clear from uh from from this book or many other on the subject is that whatever the phenomenon is it is very concerned with nukes um, so Roswell really it happened in Corona, New Mexico, but it's right near, um, Alamo Gordo. Um, it, it's right near white sands missile testing. So we were setting off nukes. These things show up. Um, there's uh, Bob Salas uh, was, a an air force, uh, missile commander. Uh, he, him and several other folks, he's written several books talking about incidents when, uh, he was on duty and a bunch of craft of some sort showed up lights in the sky and shut down all of our nukes wow guy named robert hastings wrote a book ufos and nukes he, you know he i think he dove into that as well as anyone has but um you know if you if you step back for a second so like carl sagan said if we find one microbe from outside the, of our solar system then the universe is teeming with life so say for instance let, let's just assume that there is is something that that is technologically more advanced than us. Um, and you're looking at our behavior and look, you can point to any number of conflicts currently, right? And the fact that we have a bunch of nuclear weapons pointed at each other, that can we can wipe out the planet several times over. Wouldn't you be concerned about, I mean, I mean if you were, if you, if you, if you run a zoo uh, and all of a sudden the monkeys have a rocket launcher, would you be keeping an eye on what's going on? Yeah. Right. You may sneak in when they're sleeping and take their ammo. Yeah. Know? Yeah. It would be concerned. Oh, yeah. 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 
That's a good point. I, we've kind of touched on some of this topic before, and I think that Matt and I ended up coming back to that we are all one. And I don't think that that means contained within this thing we call Earth. Mm-hmm. I think it is all the galaxy. It is, it is absolutely everything. We are all one. So, you know, again, the zoo is a great analogy, but I think that if we blow up our cell, it's, it could let's say catch fire to stick with that analogy and really have repercussions on the rest of the zoo, you know, right. or the rest of the city, however you want to, how you want to bring that analogy to. But yeah, I think that we have a direct effect on, on other galaxies and other planets that we aren't even aware of, but obviously they are. Right. I, I like um, North Sentinel Island might be a better analogy. Are you familiar with it? North no. Sentinel Island. So uh, it's an island out uh, off the coast of uh, India and they protect the island that's the island where there are a bunch, there's a native tribe and anyone that gets close gets killed with arrows like i mean if, if you even try to land a ship and, and this happened not too long ago within the last two or three years uh, a bunch of like missionaries tried to go there they all got killed oh, wow. um, but india they're essentially they're part of india they're protected by india but they don't know what india is it's wow. north central island they have their own culture they have their own language and you know essentially we could be North Sentinel Island. We just don't know it. Yeah. You know, we could be sitting here and, and somebody maybe, yeah, watching, monitoring. Um, and UAPs show up and we try to shoot them down. Right. <laughs> right. You know, and there's always truth buried in fiction, right? I, I don't know if you guys watch Star Trek, but you remember the prime directive was always non-interference. Was, was that uh, whatever uh, species, whatever planet or, that they come in t- contact with, they aren't supposed to interfere with uh, their development, their evolution, things like that. I would say that I would assume that UAPs are probably have a similar code, you know, in, unless if it comes down to they're about to just end this thing and blow themselves up, you know, right. they, I'm sure they have some fail safe where it's like, okay, we got to come in here and interfere a little bit. <laughs> right. That, that would be the hope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which kind of, which, Makes it sound like a religion, right? Somebody's coming to save us from ourselves. Yeah. Messiah. Yeah. That'd be so interesting. I always think about that kind of with the, you know, Christian faith. You have this idea that Jesus is coming back. Right. But like if some spaceship flew in and some guy was saying he was Jesus, I don't know like how people would take that. And it'd be, it would be interesting because it's like that, that story of, I feel like the Bible kind of, builds it up as like a guy that's going to come like floating down from a cloud. But like, I don't like if it was to be true, like what Jesus could be like an alien. What if he was, you know, like I'll be back and he really does. He comes back, but he's like in a spaceship and took another form. <laughs> just Well, it could be just like the same form, but he's just like in a spaceship. Cause like it didn't say that he wasn't going to be in a spaceship. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. We're just looking for trumpets. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's just like, like how would the culture respond if like that really did happen? Like, would we try to blow it up or would we recognize it for what it is? I don't know. It's just an interesting thought. Well, and the, the Ezekiel's wheel is essentially a description of a flying disc. So, I mean, you can go back to the Bible. Uh, the book of Enoch also has similar things in it so and these things are in a lot of religions uh even native americans you know talk about sky people so 
yeah, I mean, the whole concept, again, kind of like physics and spirituality, it's not mutually exclusive. You know, all those stories in the Bible, yeah, and, and these other religions uh, probably came from real events or have some basis in reality other than just the story. 100%. I heard, was it the Jewish faith that believes that Christ is not coming again and then the Christian faith believes that he's coming again? Something and like that. it's like a big debate. And I heard someone say recently, they're like, can we just not, can we like just put this on hold? And then when he comes back, we'll ask him. Yeah. On that, I would say my, the way that I look at the second coming is it, through an evolution of consciousness. It's through the Christ consciousness. And I don't, I don't, for me, I don't really believe that we're going to see a physical body come back, but I think it's the realization that we all hold that Christ consciousness. It's not actually Jesus coming back. It's Christ. You know, I think there's a lot of misinterpretation and, and misunderstanding on, on waiting for these trumpets and a physical body to come down and all that. But I think that slowly but surely he's arriving through consciousness. It's a spiritual ascension. Yes. Yeah. I'll buy that. It's what's rang true for me more more than I, the more I sit with it. Right. I feel like it makes much more sense too. And you can kind of see it too. You can see it awakening within people. And it, yeah, it just seems more graspable than, yeah, than kind of the literal interpretation might portray. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was Alan Watts said enlightenment. Uh, someone asked him what enlightenment is. And he said, it's every single moment of every single day. I love that. That's good. Powerful, especially if you look at it with from the right lens. If yeah, you can, if you can embody what that's actually saying. Yeah, that's beautiful. So, do you guys believe, um, like the the Aquarian age that that we are in, that we are entering into an age where we will raise our consciousness? It's hard to say. I mean, yeah, I think I think it can just go either way. It's like, yeah. It, it feels like it is. It feels like we're me with with the connection of the internet and this ability to be exposed to all these different ideas does seem to be accelerating people's awakening and, and spiritual journeys. But equally, it's like that light and that darkness seems to go proportion a lot of ways. And it's like you equally have this destructive potential that seems to be yeah, kind of go coinciding with that. So it's, it's tough to really call. Do you feel like there is an eternal battle between light and dark? Yeah. I yeah. Feel like, I mean, that's yeah. the Bible. That, that's all these spiritual texts. Uh-huh. I feel like in order for light to exist on this plane, it's like it, it kind of has to, it, it's, it's split into those two and those two create this experience. It's kind of like, I mean, imagine, uh, a movie without any shadows, like without any contrast, you wouldn't, if you don't have the contrast, you can't have anything. You know, if you just have a, a, a white screen and there's no, if there's no black to it, there's no, you just have, yeah, you have blank blankness. So it's almost like for it to exist in this form that we see, it does have to have that, that tension that goes with it. And I think that's my interpretation of a lot of, those ancient texts like the like the Bhagavad Gita that displays that as an internal battle that's going on within us but also as a beloved it's going on around us and so 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of my interpretation of it. Yeah, I subscribe to that as well. And yeah, I think it goes within and without, similar like you were just saying. And it's become more and more obvious to me the past few years that I feel like we are in a cultural spiritual war. We're in a spiritual war or we're we're at odds um, with light and dark in this reality that we're experiencing. And, you know, a prime example of that is we're told that people who are truly virtuous and speak the truth and have morals and principles that they are to be canceled and that they are, we're told that they're misinformation mm. people. Like, it's just, it's almost like they try to murky the water. They try to muddy the waters intentionally. So you don't yeah. know who is truly virtuous and who actually has morals and principles and integrity and the people that lack that stuff or actually put on a pedestal you know right. if you're watching mainstream media if you're watching the the main media is that you know the social media is all that stuff um a lot of those algorithms they do pump up these people who um you know don't have a backbone to be honest and and it's it is irritating to see um, people that i view as as people with true integrity to have the muddy have the waters muddied on them and and try to tell people that they don't have their best interest mm -hmm. you know so you really have to like look through the lines um currently to read through the lines to see who actually has your best interest and who doesn't right and to me i would put that in the category of a spiritual warfare type of thing you know no to that point uh david grush is a perfect example of that um so he came out, he told his story. Um, it's pretty well been swept under the rug, but uh, a, a publication called The Intercept uh, put out a hit piece on him. Uh, basically, they got, it was a younger reporter, got a call from someone within the intelligence community, said, hey, you need to look into this Grush guy and started feeding him information. He was, he's got PTSD that resulted in alcoholism and marital problems. Well, here's the thing about people in the military who have seen combat. They all have PTSD. You're either a sociopath or you have PTSD. They all do. Um, and frankly, substance abuse comes along with that. Mm -hmm. um, so they, you know, they wanted you to say, listen, you can't listen to this guy. He's, I mean, but because he, but if we're going to do that, then we can't listen to anyone who's ever been to war. You can't listen to General Eisenhower. You can't listen to president kennedy you know none of these people who, who have seen it who have seen it from the front lines um so it was it was sad but but you're exactly right well it's starting to become a common playbook so i know for me <clears throat> like i said i'm, I'm paying attention to it and I, I don't know if, if more than others but it's something that struck a chord with me so it's definitely in my awareness but I mean, you can just see like a, to name a few, I mean, you got RFK, they did it to, they yeah. got Rogan, they did it to Grush, they did it to Russell Brand. I mean, and that's just like off the top of my head. I'm, I'm sure there's many, many more, but it's just a common theme that if you're paying attention, you can see, you know, look at these guys' track records and make a judgment for yourself. Have they been speaking anti-establishment narratives? Have they, do you feel like they've been honest with you? Stuff like that. And then you can kind of read through the lines again, like, okay, they're, they're dragging this through, dude, through the mud. You know, what's mm -hmm. the reasoning behind this? So 
to me, that playbook is only good for so long. It's it's worn out in my awareness. I can see right through it. And I, I would like to think that other people are waking up to it as well, where they're going to have to come up with a new play, you know, because it's it's wearing thin. It's interesting. I Yeah, well, and, and with with Rogan, um, I mean, he's just become such a media force. You know, he, he'll have episodes uh, that'll have 40 million views. I mean, it's off the charts. There's nothing else. I when um, you know your your primetime shows, uh, CNN will will have a few hundred thousand. I think Tucker Carlson at his peak could have four million. Wow. Rogan's ten x that. It's it's un, it's incredible. It's hard um, to even fathom the the well, impact that has. Right, and canceling him for being alt right was just a bizarre thing. Um, you know, and because he's someone who's platformed. Cornell West and he called himself a Bernie bro. Um, it's, it's, it was just, it was bizarre. Um, but, but again, I, you know, we have such limited, uh, information. And so then, you know, when your media comes out and, 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 uh, shits on this person and you've not really consumed it, they're what they're saying. It's easy to, to dismiss them. It's easy to cancel them. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and another common one is, uh, you know, like, for instance, Tulsi Gabbard's another one that came up, you know, mm. they were they're were labeling her as a Russian asset, you know, mm. and I, I heard that parroted to me from someone. And it's to me, it's just one of those like, dang, you know, you should go look into her. I don't yeah, I don't know. I know Hillary Clinton told you she's a Russian asset. But I, <laughs> I would take a second look at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, right. It, it, you know, and, and RFK, like I, I will go to, to CNN and Fox each day just to see what they're saying. And I remember when he declared himself for president, both of them just had just hit pieces, you know, coming out about him. And and I, politics aside, I don't, I'm not definitely not here to, you know, wade through that mess. But here's a guy who sued Monsanto and won. <laughs> David versus Goliath. Yeah. I mean, talk about somebody we should be looking up to, but yeah, but again, you know, from the left and from the right, they're they're trying to take him down. Yeah, environmental lawyer. I mean, at that, like, I I hadn't even heard that he won against Monsanto, but I mean, I've heard he cleaned up the Hudson. There's right, just, he has a track record that is near impeccable. That uh, if you just do a little bit of homework and listen to this guy talk, seems like a pretty solid dude. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, well, and and is talking about getting us away from the corporatocracy that we've become. That that you know that corporations essentially are dictating our policy. You know, uh, yeah, whether it be with our food, um, with our drugs, uh, it's essentially corporations that are funding the candidates that are making the laws. To me, he's the greatest hope that I can see that we have in this moment. You know, and I know there's so many unknown factors out there that I can't see and it's not my awareness. But if I had to choose the next step for the progression of humanity to to a better life, he is a shoe in to me, you know, and, you know, I've gone my whole life with politicians giving me just empty promises and there is a potential that he is doing that as well. I, I, in my core of my cores, I feel like that's not the case. And I don't know how much power he has to make a lot of change, but I can promise you that guy is going to go in swinging and he'll go down swinging. And that's all I'm asking for. Right. Yeah, I know. And and it's funny talking about like coming full circle is Dwight Eisenhower gave the last speech 
uh, of his presidency, a warning of the military industrial complex. And then his predecessor, John F. Kennedy, dared to stand up to him and said he was going to smash the CIA into a thousand pieces. And they shot him dead for it. So it would be what 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 a full circle thing to have his his nephew come back and uh, perhaps pull us back from the brink. He's got the story. Yeah, he's got the story to win it. Yeah. And, you know, he just announced he's running independent. So that's another thing that we're going to have to battle with as a collective is this lie that's been told to us that, hey, if you if you don't vote left or right, you're actually just throwing your vote away. It's completely wasted. In this current status that we're in, that may be partially true. But the thing is, if we all collectively flip that on its head and say, no, actually, your two-party system is broke and we're tired of it. And you guys are putting up two options where it's who's who's not as bad as the other one. It's never like, oh, these are actually great candidates. If we could all come together and collectively agree that, hey, we're not throwing away our vote. And he may not win this one, but if we can get up to 20, 30, 40 percent of votes, whatever have you, if we can get a solid number, that lie will disintegrate right in front of us. And right. that two party system will be broken because we're not lying to ourselves anymore. And part of the two party system, I think, puts us at each other's throats. Um, again, maximum en- engagement is maximum enragement. If you go to uh, CNN or NBC, right, MSNBC right now, I mean, they are they are trying to get you wound up and angry about Donald Trump. If you turn on Fox, they are doing the opposite and they're trying to get you angry. And and I think people start believing the enemy is within is mm-hmm. is no it's the other side you know mm-hmm. that's that's the problem we've got to we got to destroy the other side yeah and it's it's not a good mindset for the country to be in i i don't think the i yeah i don't i i fundamentally disagree with that two-party mindset um i i don't think i i think there are such good people um that are in both camps because they didn't realize there's a better camp to be in yeah, I think that too, that that idea that you're just throwing your vote away, I think that probably stems from whatever people or institutions that are benefiting from the two, two-party two system. Because when you really look at it, the biggest population isn't the Democrat or Republican voters. It's the non-voters right. that make up the vast majority. I don't know what it is. I don't have the numbers, but I... I want to say that, I mean, it's probably double what each one of those is by themselves. The people that are just like, don't even, are so over politics that they don't even want to engage at all. Right. And so if you imagine if say, I mean, I hate not having these numbers in front of me, but just for example, say the Democratic, the people that vote Democratic are 20 two percent and the people that vote republican are 22 percent and the people that vote that don't vote at all are like 56 percent wow yeah well then imagine if all of a sudden those people start thinking that their vote matters it's i think it really shakes up the game because i think right now the game is so dialed in that it's always so close the i mean imagine look how close the last elections have been Mm. with only I don't even know, 40% of, say, 40% of people vote. like, And yet that it's like a, a few percent margin difference. Mm-hmm. When you have like the majority that aren't voting at all, 
And so the, the independent party, uh, I think that that makes it interesting because now you have the potential to tap into those people that were over it. And, I, and I've seen in like YouTube comments on a lot of these videos in the conversation where it's like people have saying like, I haven't voted in 10 years and this is the first year I'm going to be voting and I'm going to be voting for an independent. And so that's, that's interesting to, to think about. Yeah, it really is. <clears throat> and also I've seen since he announced he's going independent just a few days ago, um, now you're, you were seeing him attack from the left because he was taking votes from Biden or, you know, competing against him. And now you're seeing attacks from, for, come from both sides. Right. They're like, OK, this guy's screwing the game up. Like, let's get him, you know. So it's been interesting to see uh, he's he's taking it from all angles right now. But I mean, what he's doing is such an admirable thing to do. And, you know, I, I know me personally just put trying to put myself in his shoes for a moment like. I couldn't think of a better way to be of service to the collective. And if I did lose my life over it, what a better way to go out, you know, mm. fighting for truth. Principled. Yeah, yeah. principled. It's heroic. Yeah, it's heroic for it sure. It really is. Jeff, I want to circle back. You have quite a big pile over there. Do you have anything <laughs> anything well, else to throw at us? And actually, before you before you dig into that one you have in your hand, I'm curious what got you interested in just whether it's crop circles, mm. UFOs, like what what is because there has to be some kind of uh, catalyst there. That's a good question. Um, so yeah, coming from a military family, I'd always listen to people in that world. Um, and I would say probably it was an interview with Chris Mellon. Are you familiar with him? So he was deputy assistant, assistant secretary of defense intelligence. Um, he so comes from the Mellon family. So Paul Mellon would have been his grandfather. Um, uh, let's see. So John Warner, the third would have been his uncle, uh, who was Senator, uh, from Virginia, uh, chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, um, and John Warner IV would be his cousin. But anyway, he was uh, so under President Clinton and President Bush. And so he gave an interview saying that essentially, I'm here to tell you, you have not been told the whole story about non-humans, crafts in the sky, what's going on. And I honestly, it, this was a few years back, and I kind of stepped back and saying, like, are you, are you kidding me? Um, and then just started reading more. And I mean, yeah, I couldn't have told you who Colonel Corso was uh, a few years ago um, or Robert Hastings or, you know, all these other like whistleblowers. I mean, Grush is not, David Grush is not on an island. You know, he was up there with Ryan Graves, you know, Navy pilot who's talking about um, seeing uh, up in the atmosphere a cube within a sphere that could maintain Mach 0.0 and high winds. So what that means, it's completely stationary and high wind. Uh, and that they that they would see that on their training daily and that we're they're still running into them to this day. So that was one of the things that Ryan Graves talked about. Uh, David Fravor. So then, you know, so from Chris Mellon, then I start listening to these other people. Um, David Fravor was uh, in an incident, uh, the, the Nimitz, the Tic Tac incident, does that ring a bell? I've heard so, of the Tic Tac thing. Yeah, so um, so crafts, uh, th that's another thing about this this story. This didn't just start when we started setting off nukes. Like, 
the what we call Tic Tacs today, you know, hundreds of years ago, they used to call like cigar shaped. They'd see these cigar shaped objects. Um, same description, uh, you know, seamless uh, white uh, objects that that would move. Uh, so like essentially what happened with the Nimitz is they were out on a training mission. They're in F-18 Super Hornets, right? So you've got two people. So you've got a, a pilot and you've got a, a WIZA, a, a weapons officer. Um, so Alex Dietrich uh, was also uh, one of the pilots and then in, in two WIZOs. And so all four of them saw uh, essentially this tic-tac-shaped object uh, coming out of the water. And then it went from a foot above sea level to... 50,000 feet in a second. Wow. What no, no, no sound, no sonic boom, no signs of propulsion. He went on 60 minutes and he told this story. So that like the story's out there. Um, and, and again, I had totally missed it. The, the incident happened in 2004. Wow. Okay. Um, but, but again, you know, th they're still seeing these things today I, and, and talk to, and, and so when I see people like, like pilots, I had this conversation with my next door neighbor. Uh, we started talking about, yeah, the cube within a sphere. And he said, he's, uh, he's career Air Force. He said, you know, I haven't seen it, but I know people who have. And he talked about two fighter pilots and that had seen the exact same thing that Ryan Graves is talking about and has for, and for decades. Like it's known within, within these circles. So it's interesting. Um, so I, I think, yeah, once you kind of step into that rabbit hole, once you once you start listening, because we're just bombarded with so much information. Um, and it was, it was always easy to, to dismiss of like, oh, okay, well, if there's some kind of non-human, we'd have seen them already, right? Well, I, I don't know that that's the case. I, I think there have been incidents, uh, a lot of incidents, um, but I don't think we've been told the whole story. Uh, the, let's see, James Fox, uh, he's done several documentaries. Uh, the Phenomenon came out in 2020. I think it's maybe the best documentary ever done on the subject. Uh, and in it, he interviews Senator Harry Reid. So S Harry Reid was Senate Majority Leader, right? Uh, also, Senator in Nevada, where Area 51 is. If anyone knows where the bodies are buried, it's Harry Reid. Um, and Harry Reid said unequivocally, the American people have not been told the truth about UFOs. Wow. Um, so that, that, that's a great doc. Highly recommend it. The phenomenon, uh, the phenomenon, Christopher Mellon's in it. David Fravers in it. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's everything you want, nothing you don't. I mean, because yeah, there, and uh, of course there are, when it comes to that subject with any subject, you want to listen to the most qualified. And, and I think, and I think they're, they're in that, um, it's, it's really well put together. That's awesome. So. That's a couple of times now that I've heard of these UAPs coming out of water. Mm -hmm. Have you heard anything about maybe they reside down there or how probable do you think that is? Definitely. Um, so yeah, uh, Jeremy Corbell, who's a documentarian, you know, he's, he had a conversation with Navy intelligence person who said there are far more in the water than in the air by a factor of several. I had this conversation, uh, I was in a crawfish boil and, and uh, saw a guy was a Navy SEAL and he was uh, West Coast, which means they're right by Catalina Island, which is, which is a, a hot spot, right, of, of UAP activity. And so 
um, you're about to leave. And uh, one of my friends said, hey, you got to ask him, ask him about UFOs. And I said, hey, did, did you ever see anything? And, uh, and he said, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, we, we saw him regularly. Yeah. Um, Always non-hostile. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. He said, it, you know, it never interfered with them. Um, you know, the stories, uh, for instance, so in David Fravor's story, so uh, it went, you know, from just above the water, way up in the air. And then, and then, so the, the radar operator, Kevin Day, uh, called me and said, you're not going to believe this. That object is at your cap point. It knows where you're going. And it just went there. <laughs> so obviously intelligently controlled. Um, there was a, a fighter, an Iranian fighter pilot years ago. I think this was the seventies who got close to one. Um, <clears throat> And it shut off his comms and his weapons, but it let him keep flying his plane. But it had that kind of specificity of like, you're not shooting at me and you're not calling your buddies to come shoot at me, <laughs> but you can stay right here if you want. <laughs> that is wild. It, it's a pretty wild story. It's very yeah. reassuring, you know, just to know that, you know, hopefully they are benevolent and you don't hear stories of them shooting down. If anything, you hear more stories of us shooting them down. Right. You know? Right. Well, and then every alien movie you've ever watched, right? It's them coming to destroy us, enslave us, take us over. Like if that's projection. not if that's yeah. not projection, <laughs> I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, right. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because if there was a story of them shooting us down or blowing up buildings, the media would be all over that. We would surely hear about it. Right. Right. But no, you asked. Yeah. On so on the crop circles. Um, so. Again, kind of so let's assume for a moment that there is something else trying to communicate with us, but doesn't necessarily speak English or even have a form like ours. How would they do it? So the crop circle phenomenon, the first known, the first published um, account of a crop circle came from 1678. What? It's wow. on the cover of this book. So again, like the rest of the phenomenon, not new. Uh, I would argue that it's in the Bible and most other religious texts uh, or, or religions have it somewhere in there. Um, but two of the wildest ones, two of the ones I wanted to, uh, to talk about, uh, the Milk Hill Galaxy Spiral. The Milk Hill Galaxy Spiral, so this was in Southern England in August of 2001, 409 perfect circles across 900 feet. Wow. So what, three football fields? Yeah. Yeah, and and this was in a time uh, I don't know if you've ever been to England in the summer, but the nights are really more dusk, and it only lasts a few hours. Right, they're so far up north, um, and so in a time where it, you know it would take humans with the best technology in the world in two thousand one weeks, months, you know, to create something like this appeared overnight. Wow. The, and you're so, talking perfect circles. Perfect circles. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that alone right there is a feat in itself. Right. There were some, uh, so there were guys in the 90s who came out. So, you know, there were England, yeah, Wiltshire, Southern England uh, is, it's kind of been the epicenter. They're all over the planet. I, I think 34 countries. There have been some in America, but for whatever reason, Southern England is the biggest, the best, like that's where they show up. Um, but you know, there's a lot of pressure on the media, pressure on the government. You know, let's explain this. Let's, you know, these things just keep popping up. There were two guys that, that, that Doug and Dave, 
uh, Doug and Dave came out and it, it's not like they were caught creating some incredible crop circle. They made some shitty ones. And then they said, hey, we're, we, this is a hoax. And we've been doing this for years. And not only that, we've done every single crop circle in England for the last 12 years. <laughs> and then they, and so they, they asked him to recreate it because the symmetry, you know, and there's, um, there's every kind of crop circle you can imagine, right? But a lot of them will have sacred geometry. Um, they'll have religious symbols. They'll have a menorah. You know, there's been everything you could possibly think of. Did they even and, have like a picture of their self on one of them? Oh, yeah. No, they did a whole deal. And, you know, the news agencies came out and they and so they essentially they said that they they made them by they took a, <laughs> a two by six with some ropes and stomped the crops down, which if you look at them is not the way these are formed at all. Um, and then they asked him, well, how come there aren't any footprints? This is the best part of the Doug and Dave story. Why are there no footprints in between like all these perfect circles that you supposedly did? And they said, oh, that's because we pole vaulted between the spots. Well, that makes sense. It never. <laughs> yeah. The Doug and Dave story was always just a farce, but it gave the media an excuse to stop talking about it. I see. Discredit the whole thing. Right. Right. Then they were probably paid shills to begin with. That would be the assumption of, of many. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Right. Make it go away. Yeah, yeah. That's absolutely wild. So did they ever end up coming out and saying that they were full of it or anyone catch them or anything like that? No. Um, I, you know, they took credit and in the large part, they stopped talking about it, but it's still happening. I mean, to this day, I mean, there were, yeah, there were many in England this summer. Yeah, I remember, you know, when you and I were talking at the gym about this and you sent me a video um, that kind of gave a general idea of, of what was going on. And one of the things that struck me in that video was there was talking about the difference between Doug and Dave, what they were doing, and then the real crop circles. And the real mm -hmm. crop circles, they were shown up close on some of these crop circles that were made and the the crops were actually woven in together in these right. beautiful braids very intricate braids and it showed where doug and dave were doing it with their boards and it was just breaking the fiber right and just kind of snapping them in half right and just very rudimentary way of doing it and another thing that i remember that set the real ones apart from the doug and dave was that it, uh, you may have to help me out with this one but it was something along the lines of the how it was like the DNA or the cellular structure right. uh, within them had like had some radiation in yes. it or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that essentially that um, in in a real crop circle that they're um, they're burst uh, like uh, the um, the nodule. So like as, as so it's usually in wheat. They're in a lot of different crops, but for whatever reason, wheat seems maybe that's just because it's abundant in that certain area. But um, that uh, that on the the nodules uh, that it actually will burst from heat. Um, and, and that it essentially is a microwave, some that type of radiation is, is what is responsible, right? So smashing it down does something totally different. It looks completely different. And they couldn't, you know, they tried to get them to ask them to do like, you know, alignment, you know, do, do a large one, you know, with because these have incredible, perfect alignment across 900 feet. I mean, like how you could do that even today. Like with the best drones, I don't know that we could recreate that, much less in 2001. 
yeah in yeah. in the dark of the night to right. try to be sneaky about it right yeah right in the, the the dark of a very very short night yeah yeah that's fascinating so one other one that i i think is absolutely fa- fascinating um so some called it the arecibo answer so in 1975 carl sagan you know, we sent out in binary uh, a message to a star system and essentially we you know, we said we are, it started with at the top, we are carbon-based life form. Um, you know, we inhabit, so this solar system, we inhabit the third planet of a solar system with nine planets. Um, you know, there are this many of us, this is what our face looks like, um, you know, all these different things. And so in, also in August of 2001, it's funny, all, two of the, the best crop circles happened right before 9-11. Mm. Um, Uh, it was not long before it was recognized as a representation representation of the binary code first beamed into space from the Arecibo telescope in Puerto Rico in 74. However, there were a few modifications. The message apparently indicated that its creators were silicon-based and smaller than ourselves. They also indicated that they inhabited a binary star system. So, it, it you know, how we in that binary showed that you know, we have the sun and then the nine planets and then we occupy the third one. Uh, they said that they have two suns and occupy, I believe, three of the planets in the system. Oh, wow. So that's just one interesting one. I mean, there's just there's thousands and thousands. And I mean, um, Whoa. you know, you're, you get an actual face. Yeah, that's what I was referring to with the face. Uh-huh. They sent like a profile picture crop uh-huh. circle. <laughs> profile picture. <laughs> 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 did 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 we swipe right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but it's interesting. I you know it, it does seem that something is trying to communicate with us. It's uh, yeah, it's wild, and it's and that's the other thing. It's not new. Like this was 1678. They were talking about this. So again, whatever it is, is still um, trying to communicate with us. Did we comprehend, so whenever we sent that binary message saying that we're carbon-based, life form, third plane, all that, the very, if I recall right, the very bottom thing we sent said that we use either satellites or radio waves or mm. something like that. And then when they sent something back, it looked like waves coming out of both sides that almost made me think that they're saying like we communicate with telepathy or something mm. to that extent. Did, did they ever clarify what that was? I'm not sure. It's not this book doesn't give a, a very long answer about that because there's so many in it. So it just gives like one paragraph. Um, that's a good question. I mean, again, like just that one, you could have a whole series about, right? Yeah, like you could right. probably dig into that one for hours and hours. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we're probably still deciphering what all the all those things mean. Sure. They dumped a bunch of information on us with that one right there. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, with us telling them we're carbon-based life forms, here's what we look like and all that. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in the basement, dude. We're living down in the water. We we see you. We right. see you on a daily basis. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool yeah. stuff. So do you know when's the last time we've gotten a crop circle? Has it been a while? I don't. I know there were several in England this summer. Okay. Um, but yeah, past that, um, yeah, I did look up and look at a couple of them, but yeah, I mean, they're always beautiful. Yeah. You know, incredible patterns and sacred geometry, numerology. Um, yeah. If if you were designing something to uh, speak to someone that may or may not know your language, it 
all seems perfect for that. Yeah. It's like they know we use symbols to to communicate. And I mean, even our words are symbols. So if, if they can figure out all that stuff on how to turn off communications and how to turn off weapon systems, it, I would assume they can probably figure out how to speak English relatively easy. Sure. But maybe that's more, maybe they feel like that's not necessary. Maybe they feel like this is a you know, far more evolved way to communicate and get the point across with us and not get stuck in a, a limited language. You know, I'm sure they have their reasoning for not speaking to us back in English, you know? Right. And another thing with, you know, the crop circles being in England, it makes me wonder if there's like an energy grid along that, along that area right there. I mean, cause like I know with pyramids discovered in Egypt, they've found pyramids just from looking at energy grids and are the, are those digging called down ley lines. I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Lines. I just figured, I just heard something about that fairly recently. Yeah. I think that's exactly the same thing. And it, yeah, again, I've heard that they found pyramids just by finding those ley lines and digging down with them under there. And sure enough, a pyramid down there. That's crazy. Right. I've heard something too, where they're starting to put, uh, I haven't looked into it, but someone was talking about something called a med bed, which is uh, some kind of form of healing that they create on the intersections of those, mm. which is interesting. Um, it's on my list to look more into because it seems pretty fascinating. It's kind of a new new technology that's that's rolling out that uh, that I don't know if it's like federally funded. But I'm just going off of hearsay of what someone was telling me in a conversation, but they were saying something about how it's going to be available to the public, but they're going to start with like only making it available to like vets, kind of these people that need it most. Yeah. But there's something that's something special that's going on in the medical community that has to do with those lines, which is just crazy that there's these little vortex pockets that just happen to be above certain grid lines i don't know that's have you have you dug much into that rabbit no hole? i don't know anything about that but you say a new technology it might be a very old technology oh, yeah. you know that that could have been part of the purpose of things like the pyramids right um yeah and and the building of them is absolutely incredible and not something that we could necessarily even recreate today uh, there are 300 ton monoliths within some of these ancient structures like tell me how we can move that today yeah um and and the blocks i mean the great pyramid at giza i mean the, the block they look machined i mean you couldn't fit a sheet of paper between these perfectly laying blocks have you guys ever heard of i was watching a documentary recently and they were talking about the pyramids and a potential reason that they were built and they were saying that I'm trying to recall back, but it sounded like there was a huge, like a hollow shaft that goes all the way up the pyramid. And they were saying that there's these pockets of water underneath the pyramids. Mm -hmm. And they were saying they think that they're sending these frequencies and vibrations that go up this shaft up to the top of the pyramid. Apparently it rings out a really loud vibratory, like certain frequencies. And I was wondering if you guys have ever heard anything like that. I haven't, but I mean, it sounds like something that would be very plausible for when you start talking about how the power of frequencies and sound and vibration, 
Mm-hmm. I wouldn't put it past me if there was something to that. Yeah, yeah, same. But that this was something like what Nisla, Nikola Tesla talked about, um, you know, wireless uh, energy transfer. Mm-hmm. You know, that was something he worked on. I mean, understand, like, the government came and seized all of his documents when he died. And it's classified now. Uh-huh. Yeah. Who knows if we'll ever see what that was. Right. I definitely think that, uh, and I, that is what they alluded to at the end of the documentary, um, was that it, I think the documentary was kind of going off the zero point energy field mm-hmm. and they were kind of playing into that, talking about how this is not new technology and how Egyptians used to tap into that with the pyramids. And that was kind of like their energy source uh, right. to be able to get these frequencies and these vibrations to go up there and ring out at a high level. But yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating to think about that type of stuff and, and wondering when that's going to come back into play for us as a collective. If you want to understand the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. I think Tesla said it best. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting time to be alive. I feel like there's going to be a lot of interesting revelations in our lifetime that is probably going to blow our minds. Mm -hmm. Which makes me wonder if that's like, if there's any correlation with that and like the book of revelations, Mm -hmm. which is like this this period of revealing because it does seem like we're in this period where we are being revealed a lot of stuff slowly but surely and so i've always wondered if that connection because i can only see it i mean it seems like the cat's out of the bag with a lot of this stuff and i can give it a couple years and i can only imagine what we're going to be aware of which it seems inevitable you know with how many how much i feel like we have been lied to you know that has come into my awareness i feel like it's inevitable that the truth cannot stay in darkness too long and all of those lies that we've been told and are continuing to be told are going to bubble to the surface and we have the communication to be able to tell each other and update each other in real time across the world on these these truths that are bubbling up so i'm, I'm very hopeful on that May you live in interesting times. Uh, we are. <laughs> it's going to be a hard cut, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just cliffhanger, dude. Yeah. <laughs> God. Well, Jeff, yeah. Jeff, dude, thanks for, Thank you. for coming on and sharing your thoughts and insight and giving us a peek inside your mind, dude. Definitely appreciate the time. This was a blast. I enjoyed it. Thank yeah. you. Likewise, man. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. Looking forward to the next time. Absolutely. And to all the people listening, thank you. We appreciate it. All the love.